2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders recorded at CNBC's live events. Today, a conversation with Top Chef hosts Tom Colicchio and Gail Simmons, who joined us at CNBC's Disruptor 50 Summit on November 18th, 2020. They spoke with my colleague Julia Borston about the pandemic's devastating impact on restaurants, the support they say is critical to keep our food supply chains working, filming Top Chef in a bubble, and what the future of the food industry looks like beyond the pandemic. Here's their conversation.
0: Gail and Tom, thank you so much for talking to us today. I miss restaurants. I've been doing a lot of cooking at home, but I miss restaurants and I want them to survive. Tom, I know this is something you've been working so hard on. Give us a sense of what is going to happen to restaurants and what they need right now.
3: Well, you know, unfortunately, right now we're seeing a, a second wave of closures. Um, uh, Portland closed restaurants for indoor dining. Um New York, uh, we just got word that they're probably going to go down to a, you know, gray yellow, which will mean that um, they won't close indoor dining, but we'll be limited to four people. Um, outdoor dining, it's about 25 degrees. Well, I don't know. It's about 32 degrees outside today in New York. Uh, outdoor dining is pretty much done for the season. Um, we're, 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 we're looking at an extinction event right now for, for restaurants. Um, you know, we're all hanging on by a thread. And the only thing we're really waiting for is whether or not Congress is going to pass the Restaurants Act. Um, the Restaurants Act is uh, uh, something that uh, myself, uh, along with the Independent Restaurant Coalition, has been working on since mid-March. Um, and it's a bill that will provide $120 billion of liquidity to independent restaurants. Uh, that would be the lifeline to, to get us through the other side. So possibly, uh, you know, when summer comes and maybe the vaccine is widely distributed, we'll be, we'll be there to open. Um, and what's at stake is about, you know, we employ independent restaurants employ about 11 million workers. Once you factor in fishermen and, and uh, cheesemakers, winemakers, farmers, uh, you know, the people who, who the plumbers and electricians who support our restaurants, uh, we're probably looking at, at 20 million people and a good deal of those jobs will be gone and they'll be gone for a long time.
0: Oh, Tom, 20 million people. I mean, this problem is so massive. If that bill is passed, if that support comes through, is there hope that the majority of the, the restaurants that have survived until this point can continue to survive?
3: absolutely what it does is it will give us income replacement for the next uh, you know 4 or 5 months to get us through uh it's a grant so it's not a loan um and it's it's pretty unique for, for two reasons one um unlike ppp um when the enrollment period is open it doesn't go through small uh, sba it actually goes through treasury uh when the enrollment period is open for the first two weeks uh, applications will only be received by um minority owned business women owned businesses and businesses at restaurants that are doing under 1.5 million dollars so all the small family-owned restaurants will be taken care of first. Um after that enrollment open. The other neat feature of this is um there'll be a period of time where we have to spend the money. So and, and unlike PPP, it's much more flexible. It can be spent on, on various different things. Um payroll, uh, uh uh paying uh paying our bills, paying our rent, um, making any uh necessary enhancements because of COVID, PPE uh and the like. Um and then after a period of time if the money's not spent. Uh, It becomes uh, a loan. Um, If the restaurant's closed during that period, any unused portion has to be given back. Um, So there's a a couple of safe gaps in place here, but it's a it's a good piece of bill. We have bipartisan support. We have 203 co-signers in the House. We have 49 co-sponsors in the Senate. Um, And whenever you have uh, Senators John Cornyn and Elizabeth Warren actually co-sign the same bill. Oh, you know we have bipartisan support.
0: I want to turn from the grim state of restaurants to the positive, to the silver linings and the fact that there's have been some amazing innovations happening at restaurants um in light of all of these challenges and restrictions. Um, Tom, tell us what you're seeing that's been surprising and unusual in this time.
3: Yeah, I mean listen, restaurants we're, we're a resourceful group of people, chefs and restaurateurs, and you know, we we've made pivots and pivots on top of pivots and pivots again and um you know obviously takeout is is a, a big part of it um although these uh, third-party uh, delivery uh, groups are, are charging pretty high rates and, and that's really not helping restaurants um uh some are negotiating um uh but uh we have a ways to go um you know a lot of people are doing uh zoom classes uh over over video are tele-networking classes uh, where the restaurants will provide the package of food and people can follow along. Um, That's been pretty popular. Um, You know, right now restaurants and restaurateurs, we're looking for additional revenue streams, however we could find them. Um, uh, A lot of restaurants right now are, are packing up Thanksgiving. So if you want your, do it in a couple of different ways, you can have the bird cooked and pick up the day of, you can have it shipped to you in advance with the recipes on how to cook it. Um, So we're, we're trying everything. We're renegotiating with our landlords. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is doing all this um, in my New York restaurants, I'm still only doing about 25 to 30 percent of my projected sales right now.
0: And I'm sure you have a huge advantage. And for you as, as a restaurateur with multiple locations and still to be only doing 25 percent is um, just speaks to how hard it must be for so many um, restaurants and chefs out there. Um, you mentioned the fishermen and the cheese makers and the winemakers. Tell me what you're seeing Restaurateurs do to help that whole ecosystem because we can't forget it really is an ecosystem. It's not just the restaurant owners.
3: Yeah, a a lot of restaurants uh, have set up grocery stores and they're using that supply chain. You know, when when COVID hit and restaurants closed, if you're a a a farmer, uh, a dairy farmer, uh, there's two supply chains. There's one for supermarkets and there's one for restaurants and uh, institutions like college campuses and things like that. And so we saw all the stories of, of milk that was being dumped out. Well, if you're a dairy farmer. And your distribution, your distributor actually packages in five-gallon containers for restaurants or, or hotels or clubs and stuff like that. Um, they can't turn on a dime and all of a sudden start packaging half gallons and 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 and, and quarts uh, with different labeling. And so that's why that got, that got dumped out. And so what we're seeing is is uh, you know restaurants that are turning themselves into grocery stores, using that same supply chain, using the farmers they u- they normally use, uh, the the fishermen, the book, uh, you know the meat suppliers and 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 funneling that through the restaurants and and uh so that's one way a lot of a lot of uh uh you know suppliers uh pivoted as well my my one of my oyster farmers out here in long island i'm out in the north fork of long island um and uh he's over in suffolk and uh he started delivering um, himself putting his oysters in a truck and delivering them himself 90 percent of his harvest was directly to restaurants and uh he had a scramble uh he's made it work uh he's doing okay but you know you would say, well, the oysters could stay in the water. No big deal. No, they actually still need to grow. You still need to actually process them. I mean, there's still a lot that happens. And then if they get up to the size where sometimes they're too big, uh, restaurants don't want them. They want a certain size. And that's what he's growing his oysters to. Um, I mean, the good news is right now when it's getting colder, the oysters grow a lot less. So he's, he's, he's hunkering down for the winter as well. Um, but also keep in mind right now, fourth quarter, this is where restaurants make their money. Restaurants do okay in, you know, first quarter, kind of break even. After the holidays, people aren't going out as much. Second quarter, springtime, we do okay. Third quarter, especially in, in places like New York, we lose money. It's a terrible, you know, three months. Fourth quarter is where we make the majority of our profit. And right now we're in the fourth quarter and we're shutting down. Um, so, you know, well, any there's... business owner, you know, crunch the numbers in your head. We you can't make this work.
0: There is a good audience question that ties right into this issue, Tom, and it's this. It's from Marie. Outside of the devastation of the pandemic, the restaurant industry's margins have been getting smaller and smaller over the years. Is this an opportunity for the restaurant industry to try to right the margin issues it's been facing? And if so, how? How? Well, Does it mean higher prices?
3: Absolutely. means higher prices. Uh, you know, restaurants, re- American restaurants, relative to their European counterparts, um, uh, you can eat a lot less expensively here, even in high-end restaurants. Um, and that's because we're not really realizing the price of labor, uh, for a long, you know, when, when, when we have pressure on, on, on our, uh, bottom line, usually it's labor that takes a cut, although, you know, the economy has been great and labor market has stronger. Also, you know, New York City, $15 minimum wage, which I support. Um, uh, but what's really killing us are rents. Uh, commercial rents in New York are astronomical. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if they're coming down. I read something recently where commercial rents are, you know, most of the large landlords are, are staying pat. They think, you know, a couple more months of this and business is going to start to come back. So they're not lowering prices. I mean, they may be giving additional TIs or, or some additional, you know, free rent period, but they're not coming down in price, but that's been the real pressure. I mean, so, you know, back when I started, you know, 35, 40 years ago, I was able to run a 32, 33% food cost. And that's the price of food. That I purchased relative to what I, uh, the, the revenue I get from food It's excluding labor, excluding rent, all my, all my hard costs. Um, I used to be able to run a 33% and still make the, you know, a 10%, 12% bottom line. Now I have to run a, you know, 24, 25% food cost because everything else has gone up. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the business model has been strained. Um, I don't know. I mean, unless prices start to come down in a commercial market, um, Uh, I, I don't see that changing that much. Now, I do see an opportunity here. It seems that a lot of people are working for home, from home. It looks like that trend may continue. Um, and so there's probably opportunities out in the suburbs, uh, places that normally we wouldn't go to. In fact, I have a restaurant in Garden City, Long Island that's actually doing, you know, pretty well relative to all my other businesses. Um, and so, uh, so I think there could be an opportunity there. Um, but it's hard to tell.
0: I want to shift um, from talking about restaurants um, to talking about the amateur chef. And you guys just shot a new season of your show, which is just um, fodder for home chefs like myself. And you also have a new show coming out that is just about amateur chefs. Tell me how different your show regular top chef looks this year and felt this year to produce
1: it and why you decided to do this amateur top chef right now. Sure. Um, big question. We did. Tom and I just got back from spending two months in Portland, Oregon, um, which has in itself taken such a, you know, a a, a pummeling this year for many reasons. Uh, pandemic, only one of them. Um, but we were able to create and build a really extraordinary production bubble and shoot on location with a crew of 150 people Um for two months and shoot our 18th season of the show, which was really remarkable. We had an incredible um, COVID protocol in place. We were all being tested every 72 hours. Um, You know, obviously everyone wore masks on set, except for the few of us on camera. We had social distancing. We built our set um, to that end. We also did as much outside as we could. And we made all of our challenges much smaller this year, you know, where we used to have 200-person Uh, dinners or walk around tasting events that our chefs would cook for our challenges. We now do, you know, dinners with a quarantined group of ourselves and a group of Top Chef alumni who came out to quarantine with us, you know, with no more than 10, 15 people at the table. So it's going to look different, but I think it's still going to look very organic and still very true to really what's happening in the industry right now. We did not pretend that the pandemic wasn't happening. We talked not only about the pandemic but that ha- but how it has affected all of our businesses how it has affected restaurants and the chefs who are our contestants this year have some real stories about how it has touched and impacted their lives as well as all of the chefs um who are our alumni chefs and of course including tom who are still running businesses through it all um so that was inc- extraordinary the fact that we could all be together and make this show and make it relevant to this moment in restaurant history. Um, and and to really respect and honor restaurants and the role they play in our lives. Uh, the Top Chef Amateur show came about from a few things. One was, of course, the fact that the pandemic has kept everyone at home, and what has come out of that certainly been seen on TV and on social media is just the outpouring of home cooking and how truly talented home cooks have become, how innovative, how ambitious they've become over the over the quarantine. And that's sort of where we thought the the show was going when we created it. We also created it because we had built this Top Chef set, this stage. We had created this bubble. Let's use it. It's working and let's create as much as we can on it. Um, with this very talented crew that we have already in place. Um, But when we went to shoot the show after we had shot Top Chef, I think the result was something altogether different and actually a little surprising. When we brought these amateur cooks, we selected 24 amateur cooks to come on the show, uh, two per episode. They would come on, they would quarantine for seven full days alone in a hotel room in order to spend a half a day with us Um, on the set of Top Chef, in the Top Chef kitchen cooking. And we sort of put them through a day in the life of what it would be like to be a chef on Top Chef. And what came out of it really was, was joy, not just the love of cooking. That, of course, was apparent and how vital that table is. But the joy of giving people something to look forward to, to get out of their homes, to come and spend a day with us, because these are super fans and they would never in their wildest dreams, especially in a year like 2020, have had this opportunity. And I think not an episode went by when all of us didn't break down into tears, not because people were being eliminated, but because we were giving people a chance to cook with us and and enjoy a day in the kitchen. And that is still a really powerful thing. It sounds like so
0: much fun. I feel like my kitchen is my own amateur top chef and my kids are the very, very tough judges. So um, I wish I could have Mine been there too. Mine uh, in too, the Julie. kitchen with you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm okay. curious. We've talked so much about this uh, surge of home chef, you know, activity and people are cooking and I'm making sourdough and trying recipes I never would have tried before. Um, Tom, do you think this is going to last once restaurants are open again? God willing, all these restaurants survive?
3: Yeah, I'm really happy that people are are cooking at home. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but I have a pretty good repertoire and I'm getting tired of my own food. So I, I can't wait to get out to like a Thai restaurant or something that I don't do. I mean, I could, I could shake Thai food, but, uh, yeah, I I think it's, I think it's great. I I guess people are picking up some skills, but I I don't think it's going to last. Um, uh, but it's, it's great that people are getting more, more, uh, you know, they want to cook. Um, We know one thing Gail didn't point out of the 150 people on our crew, not one person got sick. Um, So he did a really great job keeping everybody safe. Um, We did. And,
1: and, and about that too, when it, when it comes to to home cooking and if it's going to last, I agree with you, Tom, I think there's some serious food fatigue in the world right now, which is another reason we need restaurants. (laughs) And what's interesting is the reason, I mean, yes, it's going to last in some ways we have all become better cooks. That's not going away. You can't unlearn that. On the other hand, the reason we're all able to take the time to learn how to cook is because we're all home working from home. But I hope to God I don't have to work from home um, for the rest of my career because, you know, I'm not so sure my children or my husband will survive. So um, as soon as I start (laughs) being able to get back out to the office and everyone else starts getting back out to the office and working normal days again, we won't have Four hours in the middle of the day to bake sourdough and to make our own elaborate four-course dinners, and we will need to eat out again or to have, you know, an infrastructure that supports help for everyone. So that's that's the dream, that's the goal. Well, a mix of the two. If you you guys are. are mix of the two. If you have food fatigue, I
0: can guarantee you that everyone else out there has food fatigue because we are not uh not um anywhere near that level. Now, the next question I have is really about innovation, not in terms of recipes, but innovation in terms of the ingredients themselves. On the CBC Disruptor 50 list, we have Impossible Foods with the plant based meats. We also have Just, which is a company that makes plant makes plant based egg alternatives. I'm really curious what both of you guys think of these because they're controversial as chefs. Tom, I'm going to start with you first.
3: Oh, I mean, it, it, it's hard to put my, myself in, in the shoes of, of someone who was a vegan. Um, but it, I mean, I was a vegetarian for one year. Um, won't get into why, but I, from one year, I just decided I'd do it. I didn't crave meat. Um, and I, I certainly, and if I did, I didn't want fake meat. I think it would almost make it worse for me. And so um, while there's a huge market for, for the Impossible Burger, I mean, keep in mind that um, it is, it is and I'll piss some people off right now, but it's still a very highly processed food. Um, and and I'm not sure which one of the two burgers, it's all soy, it's, and it's, it's uh, uh, you know, that leads to more and more monocropping, which really isn't great for the environment, which really isn't great for, our the health of our soil so you know i i don't know ultimately if it's if it's a great thing i mean if i were you know a vegan or i just would I'd be happy with my vegetables um uh, but there's <laughs> there's some great innovations out there um that's just me I mean, just just may just 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 as good i think because uh you know again some alternatives to using protein uh alternatives to using eggs so they're taking a lot of the sort of the uh, feed and stuff that goes into raising chickens for eggs clearly out of the market. And again, that's corn and soy again, but you know, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's hard. There's clearly a market for it. Um, so who, who am I to say?
0: Gail, what do you think?
1: Um, you know, I'm, I'm in agreement with Tom in a lot of ways that it, it's it, sometimes it feels like you're solving one problem possibly to create another. And so, you know, you, you, there needs to be a balance. Although I will say that finding alternative protein uh, is 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 a huge, and will become even more of a, of, a, of a huge game changer um, as this planet ages. and uh, And I do think it is a vital and important thing that we all need to do, not just for vegans, um, but for all of us. Obviously, for health, for lowering of cholesterol, for lowering of heart disease, um, and and for the 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 climate. And um, so so that is important. And and I I have to admit um, that while we were in Oregon, actually shooting top chef, um, someone I know out there sent me a whole bunch of impossible meat and I'd never cooked it with it myself before they sent it to me at the Airbnb I was staying at. And I sort of reluctantly said, all right, you know what? I'm going to make these burgers tonight. I'm going to try it. And I made them for my family. And we were all incredibly impressed with the flavor and the texture. Um, I couldn't deny it. And this is by no means an ad um, that we actually, just from a from a textural standpoint and you know, flavor, it was it was a pretty good burger for whatever that's worth. Um, but I do think that food and technical innovation, you know, technical innovation in the food space is enormously uh, important right now as we combat feeding this planet and, um, and the seven, eight billion people on it. Um, And that's not always, as Tom will tell you, not always because there isn't enough food. It's about access and, and, um, and operating systems and, and, and distribution of that food. And I think that's where tech in the food space is really going to be a a massive um, growth area.
0: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a
2: detour.
0: I want my last question to both of you to be another serious one about food deserts and hunger in our country. The problem is massive and has only um, gotten much bigger during this pandemic, and I know it's one that both of you are focused on and working on. Um, Tom, tell us what you're working on right now and what awareness you would want to raise about the hunger issues and the food deserts in in many of our big cities.
3: Um, I think the term being used now is not food deserts, it's food apartheid. Um, There's plenty of food around. Um, It's not a desert, it's just people can't get it because if you don't have money, you can't buy food. It's as simple as that. We produce enough food in this country. Um, we produce enough calories in this country. Um, we don't have, you know, people don't have money. They can't afford it. And uh, the other problem is that nutritious foods are more expensive. Calories are cheap. Nutrition is expensive. And so if you're on a limited budget and you're trying to feed a family of four, well, you're going to buy the cheapest food possible. The cheapest food possible is calorie dense, but there's not a whole lot of nutrition. And so that's why you're seeing nutrition deficit. That's why you often see, malnutrition and obesity, often in the same family. Um, uh, you know, you can pack on a lot of empty calories. And, and uh, so, you know, I, I think there just needs to be an awareness. You know, my my, my wife and I, my wife made a film called The Place at the Table. came out around seven years ago, and it was about hunger in America. Uh, and, the, the, you know, the, the the thesis of the film, uh, and this was after starting to do research, was that um, the reason why people are hungry in this country isn't because we don't want enough food. We just don't have the political will to feed people. Uh, we have a SNAP system that really hasn't changed in, in, in a couple decades. Um, and it's not adequate anymore, especially as food prices uh, go up. And so and the question I think we should start asking ourselves is, why do we want to feed people that are hungry? Well, when children are showing up from school hungry, they can't learn. Right. Number one, they'd be really disruptive. And so if your kid's nourished, um, they may not get the resources they need because the teacher is dealing with someone who's disruptive all day because they're hungry. Um, and so also, you know, I think. You know, in, in, for our, our country to, to stay competitive, we're going to need to have everyone um, that number one has has great education, um, but they're also fit and they can live up to their potential. That, that's what we have to do. And so, especially those first thousand days when kids aren't getting the proper nourishment, they can't live up to their potential, mm-hmm. and that, that's that's going to keep us behind. We we need to actually move forward, and we need to make sure people are fed and well nourished. And you know, we could end hunger in this country uh, right now. The numbers are way up because of COVID, um, and what I'm hoping comes out, this is the one silver lining that I see from COVID. You know, we're seeing lines. I saw a, a news uh, clip last night, three-hour lines in Dallas, people in their cars waiting to get, you know, Thanksgiving because they can't afford it right now. Um, and these are people that were stoutly middle class, even upper middle class, you know, six, seven months ago. And so now what I'm hoping is on the other side of COVID, that as a country, we have more empathy for people who are struggling. And, and when we talk about, you know, people who, who brought it upon themselves and made bad choices and had children they couldn't afford and they should pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Well, maybe someone realize, may realize that number one, nobody wants to get, nobody wants to be born into poverty. And number two, sometimes you get a bad break. And a lot of people right now got a really bad break called COVID-19. And hopefully there'll be a greater empathy for people that are struggling.
1: I was just going to add to that, that, you know, over the last year, especially, So many of the extraordinary, um, you know, hunger relief organizations um, all over this country have done an amazing job of coming to the rescue um, and to helping step up and and really helping distribute and get people food um, and access to food as as much as they possibly can. But it's important to note that these food rescue organizations, um, food pantries, food banks are not a solution. There is no way we will feed this country what it needs in this way. They are a band aid, um, and they are doing the work. They are doing more work and harder work than we ever imagined or intended for them to do. Um, and they were, you know, they were born again as a band aid, not as a, not as a as a cure to the problem. And the cure really does need to come um, from 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 policy from from at the government level, changing the systems of distribution um, in order to make some real impact. And I and I do think that, you know, I, I know Tom and I both work with several of these organizations um, within New York City, where we're both based, but around the country. And I'm so proud and humbled by the work that they've done this year, up against what seems like an impossible and infinite task of feeding how many people need to be fed right now.
2: That was Gail Simmons from Bravo's Top Chef. She joined her co-host and restaurateur Tom Colicchio and CNBC's Julia Borston at CNBC's Disruptor 50 Summit on November 18, 2020. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. For more information about upcoming CNBC events and how you can join us, visit CNBCevents.com. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening.